my mother, right? Someone who grew up as such a strong figure in our household, part of every school field trip and, and would come and do a, a presentation cooking dumplings for every Lunar New Year celebration in class, whether I wanted her to be there or not. Michelle Wu, um, who is running for mayor of Boston. Um, and I, as a former Boston area resident, I cannot wait to kind of pick your brain, Michelle, about um, kind of your career and uh, what, what makes Boston special, but also I'm hearing some of your personal stories. Um, but I'm here joined as usual by my co-host, Don Sun. Hi, Don. Hi, Katie. Hi, Michelle. Nice to see you. <laughs> and uh, uh, we have uh, interviewed a lot of uh, Asian politicians already. And uh, uh, you are the, the one we always want you to come here to share yourself and the experience with all the Asian uh, the, the community. So it's the, we're very happy to have you here. Well, we're sure that you're super busy and we've been like looking forward to talking to you for a long time. So I want to just jump right in right away. Um, and so I was like in preparing for this episode, doing some research. Um, I read the profile of you in the Atlantic from a couple years ago. Um, and what really struck me is how often the idea of role models um, and like political molds came up. So they were kind of comparing you to Rashida Tlaib and AOC. Of course, Ayanna Presley, who's also from Boston. Um, and even like mentioned your relationship with Elizabeth Warren. Um, so I'm curious who your role models are or have been as a, as a politician and also who you're hoping um, to serve as a role model for. You know, it's, it's fun to start the conversation there because growing up that was, I, I didn't even realize it, but in some ways that might've been the biggest barrier to ever imagining myself in this, role or in this space at all. I never once thought that as the daughter of immigrants, as the oldest child in our family, that politics could be something that I would be involved in, effective at, enjoying, because it was never anyone who looked like me in on TV or, 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 or in positions of decision making. And I share often that when I was growing up, the only Asian American woman who was kind of widely known in a mainstream way was uh, Olympic figure skater, Michelle Kwan. And so many, many adults would say to me, well, what do you think about becoming a figure skater one day? And you think about the 0.0000% chance that someone could be an Olympic medalist and set them on that track in, in their life. But that is the power of role models and seeing yourself reflected and represented in that way. And so for me, um, I didn't grow up meeting any politicians or, or being connected to politics at all. And so I've had two figures in politics who I've had the chance to work for and learn from. Uh, as mentioned, my former law professor, Elizabeth Warren, who is an example, you know, agree or disagree with her positions, you know where she stands and just unafraid to be a voice and to speak out. And for me, having studied under her at Harvard Law School, seeing the same issues talked in the same ways, taking concept, complex concepts and being able to boil it down for, for everyone to be 
accessible and, and to participate is something that is that I think about a lot. And the other elected official I've had the chance to work for is the late great uh, mayor, former mayor Tom Menino of Boston, who served as mayor for a significant amount of time here in our city. And no matter what policy experts were in front of him or what complex questions were brought, his focus was singularly always bringing it back to what does this mean for the people in my city? What does this mean for Mr. So-and-so on this corner of that block in Hyde Park or Roxbury or Roslindale and being able to be in the car with him driving all around Boston, hearing the stories of how much depth of knowledge and commitment to being connected to people's lives at that level, it's something very special being in city government. You can tackle big issues, but at the end of the day, it is so close to people's lives. And there's an intimacy there of being able to know their deepest hopes and fears and dreams and, and trying to do something about that. Okay, Michelle, it's the, uh, after three years working for Andrew to do the fundraising, it's a travel around the country. On the last six months, I stay in the New York City to do the, the, uh, the work for Andrew. So it's the, we consistently heard your name. It's the, on the East Coast, we always have two candidates running for mayor. And there's a lot of young kids, especially high school kids and the college kids. They really, really want to uh, get involved in the politics, get into the community. So, so what kind of message you want to them after Andrew's election and the transfer their the, the spirit into your campaign? That's the kind of things that I really want to you deliver some message to high school killers the kids around the country and uh, get them to get involved in your campaign to help you. What's the, your message to them? Absolutely. We need your leadership now. I know, I remember growing up how far away some of these programs and power structures and, and opportunities seemed, but in this moment, we need every set of willing hands. We need every voice. And our campaign has been centering young people from the very beginning. So many of the policies that we are pushing forward take into account how urgent the issues are, especially as we're thinking about the long-term future for these generations that have the most at stake in our preparedness when it comes to climate change or in our housing affordability and the quality of the school system and the accessibility of public transportation. And so we've been really strengthened by our grassroots organizing and our Youth for Wu group has been partners from day one. So there are many, many ways in which we've been following the lead of young people and would love to add to those ranks. Um, so please get involved. We, we could use your help. Um, yeah, that's, that's so great. And I think we've been really lucky also with this podcast to have a lot of young people get involved, but I want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned being, um, the firstborn daughter. I'm also a firstborn daughter. So, you know, firstborns are the best. Um, but I wanted to ask, like, based on your experience, both as a mother and kind of serving as a caretaker, um, for your two younger sisters, um, how that kind of, how you see the role of caretaking and those kind of experiences that are, are very traditionally female um, kind of play into your kind of political um, persona, I guess, how you see the role for things like care that we don't always see as, as central to power and government. The first 
lens that I look at any policy issue on is always from being part of a family ecosystem, a mom with two young kids, a, a daughter still um, having the chance to live in a multi-generational home with my mom downstairs. And she still has her up and down days with, with some mental health challenges, but being in a situation where I understand the push and pull of daily life for families, how much juggling there has to be, how difficult it can be, and also how impactful government policies are that when our trains are late, when, when buses are too crowded to get on, you have to wait for the next one. It's not just a matter of inconvenience and a few more minutes in your day. It's whether you'll make it to pick up your child from, from childcare on time, or whether you can have that, those few precious moments before the kids go to bed to, to have family time. And so the intersectionality of all of our issues through living them and through being in a role in that this kind of in-between generation thinking about our elders and thinking about our future and, and, and young people shapes everything that I do. I also know that there are few that I have had to be in a role where um, I'm grateful that we've broken barriers, but also frustrated that it has taken so many years to get to the point where we had the first Asian American woman serving on the Boston City Council when I joined, or the first uh, mother to, to become pregnant and, and have kids while serving on the City Council. And it's not a coincidence. It's the fact that the policies in place, which make it very difficult for working parents to balance everything, mean that you're taking the burden on as an individual and we don't see that urgency represented in spaces where people are making decisions. So sometimes being that example of how messy life is and how hard it is to juggle everything. I remember when my, my son was born and I was serving as city council president, I had to stand in the front of the room before the whole chamber holding the gavel and directing our meetings. And I would, there were days where I'd had mushed up banana just all over my clothes because that's what the snack he had, you know, as in our commute in and it does not wash out and just saying, well, you know, this is why we need to make it easier for working moms and for, for families to be driving decision-making so that we can be responsive and we'll change some of the policies that have held particularly young families back and families of color back from being connected to power and decision-making. I'm curious, Michelle, if there was like a moment that you first really realized that government had an impact on these like very day-to-day -day family things and like what that was like for you. It was in the overwhelming period of time when my mom was in the, the depths of mental health crisis. And as a 22, 23 year old, almost over a matter of weeks, stepping into flipping roles with my mother, right? Someone who grew up as such a strong figure in our household, part of every school field trip and, and would come and do a, a presentation cooking dumplings for every Lunar New Year celebration in class, whether I wanted her to be there or not. Um, just over a matter of weeks and months becoming um, so deeply involved in, you know, in internally struggling with her mental health and her physical health that um, she needed care more than anything else. And, and she needed, and my sisters needed care as well. And in those moments, I think, you know, 
so many it, it is a it is a life experience for uh, so many that you get to a point in your life where you are flipping roles with your parents and the child becomes the caregiver. It happened much earlier than I was expecting in my life. But in those moments, you realize how much your parents had already poured into you to be ready for those moments, to have the values and the, the instincts of how to care for others before yourself in, in those moments. Um, and so for me, it was never about what do I do? Should I be involved and try to take charge and help my family or not. But in, in trying to then go outside the family to get the help that we needed, that was where the frustration came from all angles, whether it was connecting my mom with the right mental health care in the language that was comfortable that our insurance would cover, or advocating for my sisters in school when they needed extra supports given what was happening at home, or opening a small family business and becoming very frustrated with the permitting and licensing process. I grew up shielded from government in a family that was quite honestly skeptical or suspicious even of, of getting too involved with government or politics. And in that moment of crisis, everywhere we turned, there was some interaction with local government that was quite frustrating. And I realized this was a universal experience for so many who had been in these roles and we needed to change the underlying systems. Good. You mentioned that uh, I, I remember you have been run small business. I'm doing the small business all my life. It's in Silicon Valley, do computer and later do the, the uh, tea, it's the tea import. And then it's the, until I met with uh, Andrew. So it's, I shut down my business just to focus on the that part. The one thing is the uh, bring my attention is the about your uh, food justice. So it's a Boston is a very, very diverse the, the cultural stuff and the Chinese we all love food. So it's the when you pick up a food justice at the one of your uh, the, the recovering from pandemic and there's around the country, I know all the Chinese restaurants, they are struggling, there's a language barriers. So it's a possible you can give us some explanation why you pick up a food justice and do the food infrastructure from that angle at the one of a uh, your political uh, agenda, or it's the the, uh, the make up Boston, the great city. It it did come from a very personal place. Once you have opened a business, and you you know our entrepreneurs are so resourceful. You will figure out they will figure out how to make anything happen if you put a clear set of rules and supports and and steps in place. And for me opening a food business, a little tea shop uh, with dumplings and sandwiches and poetry readings and open mic nights. That was transformational for what it could do for my family as well as the larger community. There is such a deep connection to how we feel part of community embedded in our food traditions and embedded in our cultural um, spaces that, that many small businesses fit into as well. And then the reason why we focused on turning this into policy was because during the pandemic, some of the most visible ways that we saw people affected all related to food, whether it was the sto grocery stores that were wiped out because food supply chains were so difficult to, to connect, or it was restaurant workers who were some of the first to lose their jobs as the businesses were shut down and they had to completely changed to a new way of operating, online ordering and takeout and, and delivery. Um, and then also hunger in the community. So many people who 
lost their jobs or were already on the edge now with everything shut down, really needing a lot of support. And so food, I really believe brings people together. It is the, it nourishes us, but it also connects us. And so our policies focus on the idea that in city government in Boston, we think of it very separately. There's hunger and nutrition in one part of the city's department, and then small businesses like restaurants and bodegas and cafes are regulated by, by an entirely different part. But if we can connect the need for sustenance and, and nourishment and, and health to jobs and opportunity and local communities, that is how we complete the whole picture. And so our goal is to say Boston has a lot of resources. And as we think about how to heal from this pandemic, physically and economically, food should be driving the way. I want to ask about the tea, but eventually, but first I have a follow-up <laughs> question, which is, um, I think this is like a really good avenue also to think about. You're from Chicago originally, and so you're a transplant to Boston. I think like so many people in the Boston area are. So I'm curious um, what you what you think makes Boston really special and like what makes you love it, love the city. Yeah, it's it's a city where people are so fiercely proud of being from this community and a city where that sense of pride and connection often goes back three, four, five, six generations in, in the history of one single neighborhood or one part of Boston. And so as someone who wasn't lucky enough to be born here um, and my parents you know, found their way to this country and I found my way to Boston, I love it like someone who has been able to learn it from scratch very consciously and, and to be here by choice and to want to raise my family here. Boston has given us everything we cherish, right? My mom, I get to live in a home where my sons go downstairs and have breakfast with their grandmother every single day. And that's only possible because of the healthcare system, the community, the schools, all of the opportunities. Boston is a city where our history, we often think of it as, as just old, right? That is hundreds yeah. of years ago. And we talk about the revolution and, and um, you know, in the time scale of, of many centuries. But in fact, in those moments when we created what is now known as the oldest school in America or the oldest park in America, the oldest um, public library in America, in fact, that was an innovation. It was a decision point and a moment of leadership and often entrepreneurship where we decided to invest and reshape our trajectory to think about the long-term and how to build the most connected society. And so that legacy also connects very much with what I see as this city's potential and this city's responsibility in stepping up to lead in a moment of, of tremendous consequence across the country. Oh. I love I love that answer. Um, but I do want to ask about the tea because I used to use MBTA and commute like 90 minutes to work. I, I was out on the commuter rail line. Um, and so I'm curious how you want to continue your work that you kind of began as a city council member on transit kind of going going forward if you were elected as mayor. Public transportation is so fundamental. We know the research has shown that in fact, the factor most closely linked to upward mobility, to a family's chances of rising up out of poverty are, are actually 
you know, in some ways, maybe surprisingly for some folks, it's actually not um, the test scores of schools in that neighborhood. It's not the public safety statistics of that neighborhood. The most closely correlated factor to upward mobility is the average commute time to work from that neighborhood. And so people's ability to connect to opportunity, and we often see transportation as layering on the injustices, exacerbating existing inequities. And so if we can remove barriers so that it is reliable, it is accessible, it connects you where you need to go, and is financially accessible, that is how we invest in everyone having the right to benefit from opportunities all across our city and all across every city. When we think about public education or parks or libraries, imagine trying to start something like that today, right? I'm going to build a building, put all these books and things inside. Anyone can take them out for free and just promise they'll come back at some point. You know, it, it's just a different mindset that we're in. And so we get pushback when I talk about public transportation as a public good and needing to move towards a vision of fair free transportation. But in fact, it is the same exact spirit and the same exact sense of this is our shared prosperity. When more people can leave behind gas powered cars and get on the subway, bus, commuter rail, it is not only helpful for the people who are now on those trains and don't have to drive and can be doing something else while they're on that, on that, uh, on that public transit vehicle, but the people who are still driving have less traffic on the roads in front of them. And all of us who breathe the air have cleaner air to benefit from. So we, when we all benefit, when more people ride, we need to do everything in our power to boost that and to make it easier for everyone. Michelle, it's the, I always run campaign and do the fundraising. So it's the one question is related to the money. I track it the, in the Silicon Valley, it's the, around the country, it's the many Asian or it's the, uh, Chinese American has uh, donated to the, uh, your campaign already. So it's the uh, before the primaries. The what's the message you are going to uh, send to the nationwide uh, donors or the supporters of you, and uh, just uh, try to make a, a last two months. Uh, we can gear up and uh, grass both grassroots and the fundraising effort. So far, it's, I think it's a fundraising. You are the number one already, right? It's a one point six million. And uh, in average, uh, what's the his historically Boston mayorship is the uh, the campaign, how much money uh, the generally people spend, and uh, uh, to compare with the other candidate, what's the the resource you most going to spend the money on? So mm -hmm. it's, I can give the the uh, donor some message where the money you want to spend, how much money you're still looking for. You know, we are nine weeks to go now until the preliminary election. And so I am so energized and, and humbled, moved to realize that many people, even outside our city, even outside Massachusetts, feel a stake in the leadership that we could show in Boston. I know that being a, a, a part of the Asian American community, I, I've benefited from knowing elected officials in office in, in many other cities and having our community working together, represented and speaking out with one voice, especially in this moment where the pandemic has accelerated instances of anti-Asian racism and even violence, uh, having our voices at the table and connected together to build infrastructure is, is something that I am 
I am so excited to partner with, with others on. When we think about um, this political situation in Boston, we are, we are, we're feeling strong, uh, but it's, it's, it's uh, up to the voters in nine weeks and we need resources to get there. Um, so in the past, uh, mayoral races have spanned a very wide range of resources possible. We have a budget where we're still needing to close the gap and get there, but with the support of many Boston residents and folks who feel invested in our in our city all around the country, um, I'm, I'm very excited and will be working as hard as I can to make sure that we're bringing leadership that truly reflects what's possible for our city and, and for this country. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I've been a really lucky as as a white person also this year doing this podcast and like um, getting to know my my Asian American uh, neighbors to sort of um, experience this year alongside them and sort of see. Um, I, I think definitely this is the moment where Asian Americans are sort of coming into the fore as a political force. Um, so I'm wondering if you have a message that you'd like to give to the Asian American community or or kind of where you see the next step going for Asian Americans in politics? Our community is diverse and strong and engaged. And I have felt so heartbroken in moments to realize that the experiences that I have had growing up as uh, in an immigrant family, to know that feeling of being picked out just because of appearance and facing discrimination um, has been not infrequent among my peers from the Asian American community. And when that those instances happened, when I was growing up, when we got home, you know, there's either, whether it was some stranger who wanted to chant certain racist sounds or pull at their eyes, when we got back home, the advice from my parents was always, you know, this is this is going to happen and we just have to keep our head down, ignore it and work harder, right? And that's a very motivating message for an individual to say, I'm going to just power through it. And I think we've seen tremendous success from, from so many who, who have felt that that is a way to um, motivate a, a sense of persistence and perseverance. But when we look at the history of our community in this country, it has been cycle after cycle of being scapegoated and experiencing racism and discrimination and xenophobia. To break that cycle, and I really feel that's where we are right now as a community, requires changing what we're saying about the response as well, that we need to be more visible, we need to be more vocal, and we need to do it in conjunction and in, in support of communities across the board. And so we're standing together with, with all of our communities to say we're ending racism and tackling the roots um, of anti-Semitism, of racism, of anti-Asian racism that have been holding our country back and affecting so much of our policies. This is the moment to really speak out and to know that when we do, it matters and it, it shapes what's possible for the next generation as well. Hmm, yeah, definitely. So I want to ask one last question before we um, let you get on to what I'm sure is a busy day of campaigning. <laughs> uh, but let's just imagine for a second, hypothetically, you're elected mayor of Boston, what's happening on day one? 
Um, this is an interesting year because we technically have a vacant seat for mayor. And so usually you think about the election happening in November, and then there are some quiet transitions and plannings, and then an inauguration in January, and then you hit the ground running with everything you've planned out. Well, this year, because Mayor Walsh, uh, our former Mayor Walsh is now Secretary of Labor, um, the moment that there is a duly elected mayor, that person will be sworn in. And so the next mayor will take office days after the election in November. Um, and so day one will be quite busy <laughs> for multiple <laughs> reasons. Um, but for me, it's been important knowing that I have I'm the longest serving elected official in this race with a decade of experience in City Hall to have put forward very detailed plans and visions for how we hit the ground running right away. And so the very first thing that I think I will do is make sure that we have a countdown up on the wall. We need government to move at the pace of our families and not of government's usual uh, speed. And so having a sense of how precious each day is in making a difference in the lives of our residents. And then of course, you know, the big task at hand in the very beginning is setting the team and bringing in a diverse representative pool of incredibly talented folks who will reflect Boston's expertise and community in making sure that we are doing all that we can um, to open the doors of government and bring people into the process. I love that um, sense of urgency with the countdown clock and everything. Michelle, thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you both. It's been an honor to be with you. My name is Katie Simpson. My co-host is Don Sun. Our podcast is sponsored by Asian American Forward. You can visit our website at www.asianamericanforward.com. If you enjoyed the show this week or have a topic you'd like to hear us discuss on a future episode, send us your comments at info at asianamericanforward.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook and hear more conversations between Don and I at our YouTube channel. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again next week.